they were dubbed the Tamworth Two. And their escape from execution and attempts to recapture them became headline news in Britain for a few days in 1998. Their names were Butch and Sundance, and they were pigs. Such was the concern for their fate after their escape from a slaughterhouse that the owners received many offers above their market price to save their bacon. Eventually, the Daily Mail newspaper bought them and paid for them to be housed in luxury at the Rare Breed Centre near Ashford in Kent, where they live today in Tamworth Towers. Now the BBC has decided to make a movie about this, called The Legend of the Tamworth Two, using real pigs, whose actions will be enhanced by computer technology to give them more human characteristics and voiced by actors. On one level, the humanizing of animals has long been the stuff of fables, children's stories, and is harmless and often funny. But on a deeper level, it reveals an increasingly accepted belief. Not that animals are humans, but that humans are animals and of comparable worth. So, a modern reader of our story this morning in Mark 5 is likely to focus not so much on the demoniac who was restored to health by Jesus, but the fact that 2,000 pigs were drowned as a result. Over 70 years ago, the philosopher Bertrand Russell, in his famous lecture, Why I Am Not a Christian, cites this story as one of his reasons, though he admittedly says, it's of less importance. He said, there is the instance of the gathering swine, where it was certainly not very kind to the pigs to put the devil in them and make them rush down the hill into the sea. You must remember that he was omnipotent. He could have made the devil simply go away, but he chose to send them into the pigs. In the story itself, <clears throat> there's a strong reaction to the drowning of the pigs, not on sentimental or philosophical grounds, but on economic grounds by their owners who lost a considerable income. So, what do we make of this story? What did you make of it in your fellowship groups this week when you discussed it together? A story that is, at least to Westerners, rather strange, and even in the Gospel accounts, a unique story. As we look at this story together, there are several interesting and important matters that emerged. Uh, but the main one is summarized in the title I've chosen or borrowed uh, from the Crossways Bible Study on Mark by David Hewitt, People Matter More Than Pigs. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to look at the story together and see what we can make of it with God's help. Mark 5, verses 1 to 20, page 1007 in the Pew Bibles. It really will help to have a Bible in front of you, not least to check that I'm preaching from the text, not from my imagination. So let's trace the events together, and I hope by the end we'll come to the conclusion that people do matter more than pigs, and why that is very good news for all of us. So let me suggest four phases in the story as we trace the events on that remarkable day together. First of all, crossing the lake. You find that in verses 1 to 5. Now, it's very easy to read the first verse without understanding the significance of what it says. Look what it says. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. 
if you look at a map, you may have one in the back of your Bible, there's one on our screens here, you will see that the crossing of the lake or the Sea of Galilee was from west to east. At this point, it was a distance of around about five miles. The disciples had set out in the evening and the journey had taken a lot longer than they expected because of this storm that occurred that we focused on last week. However, they did not end up on the east side of the lake because they had been blown off course, but because it had been what Jesus originally planned in the first place. If you look back into chapter 4 and verse 35, that evening, it had been a very long day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Now, some people suggest that after this very long and demanding day of interaction with the crowds and teaching, that Jesus hoped to get away with his disciples to a quiet spot on the other side of the lake. However, as we read the story more carefully, I think it's almost certainly that this is a planned trip by Jesus with one aim in mind. He has an appointment with a man. The east side of the lake is the destination Jesus planned. Why do I say that? Well, for one thing, the east side of the Lake of Galilee was not a destination that a Jew would normally choose. It's a very wild area, as still today, a disputed area politically. You arrive on the other side, the cliffs rise shortly up, right to what's today called the Golan Heights, still a disputed area of territory. In the first century, this region was known as the Decapolis, which means ten towns, because there were ten towns in this area. Uh, the nearest place to where the boat landed is uncertain. It was either called Gerasa, if you look at the footnote in the Bible, or Gadara, or Gagesa. Nobody knows, it doesn't particularly matter at this point. What was significant for a Jew was, was that this is Gentile territory. How do you know that? Because there's herds of couple of thousand pigs there. No self-respecting Jew would make a film, let alone a meal of pigs, but would avoid them at all costs. So, in crossing over to the east side of the lake, Jesus was deliberately entering forbidden territory. And if that were not serious enough, we discover as soon as the boat pulls into the shore there, the place where they come to is an area that is riddled by tombs probably hollowed out of the limestone cliffs. For Jews to associate with the dead made them ceremonially or religiously unclean. Again, this is a place to be avoided. And then to crown it all, from out of the tombs emerges a hideous figure, a violent and terrifying apparition known to all who live there as someone possessed by demonic powers which imbued him with supernatural strength so that even chains could not hold him. He was the kind of man you avoided at all costs which is why society had pushed him out to the margins, to the tombs, to a place where no one else would go. And Jesus deliberately chooses to land there. He is not only entering forbidden territory, he is entering enemy territory. So, as the boat comes to land, this man rushes forward and confronts Jesus and his disciples. Now, we cannot be sure exactly when in the day this occurred. It probably is dark, or at least a half-light just before dawn. And that would make the scene even more horrifying. I guess from a modern perspective, in human parlance, modern slang, we would describe this kind of day as people today, you know what a bad hair day is? 
And if you'd been one of the disciples, imagine a life-threatening storm at sea, followed by a life-threatening demoniac in an area riddled with tombs, inherited by pigs, and the half-light of darkness. Maybe the disciples thought, what next? What a terrible day. Have you ever had a day like that? When you think it can't get worse than it does. I expected the worst, and it was worse than I expected. Hmm? But what the disciples, and we need to learn, that if we are following Jesus, there are no accidental destinations in our lives. Maybe you need to know that today. This is no accident. The storm was an act of God. And they're about to learn that the one who can calm troubled seas can also calm troubled souls. You see, Jesus began his ministry right back at the beginning when we started in Mark's Gospel. He began with this great announcement. The time is near. The kingdom of God has come. Now the kingdom of God is advancing into forbidden territory, into enemy territory, beyond the borders of Israel to the Gentile territory, and eventually it will go to the whole ends of the earth. And it will go beyond the bounds of religious respectability and safety to all people, even the worst case, a man like this, whom no one was strong enough to subdue. Literally, the Greek word is a word used of taming animals. No one could tame this wild man. And as we're about to discover, Jesus is stronger than Satan and his hosts, can tame and restore those whom society has ostracized and alienated, those whom no one else can cope with. Now, I want to tell you, this is good news, very good news if you fall into that category. Or if you're simply a person whose life is in a mess, and you've tried everything else that life has to offer. You've tried everything that the experts have to offer. It is good news whatever people group you belong to. Last week we were away at the IF weekend. It's great. 70 of us, 17 nationalities. And there's probably around 30 or 40 nationalities worshipping here this morning. Why? Because it's good news, this kingdom. Listen, the kingdom of God has no asylum bills that screen out the undesirables. That rule you out on economic grounds. Are you just an economic migrant? Sorry, no place for you. The kingdom of God is open to all believers, to all who will repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. It is good news for aspiring citizens. Maybe you're a person this morning who's a stateless person. I mean, maybe literally you are, but you feel, I don't belong. Who do I belong to? Where do I find my identity? And I want to tell you, here is the place where you were meant to be in the kingdom of Christ. And he offers this invitation to all people who will repent and believe. Now, by God's grace, many of us would claim to be citizens of that kingdom. So I want to leave you this morning with a challenge. We are called to carry this good news to all people, all ethnic groups. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. At the end of his life, commissioning his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all ethnic groups. We've been entrusted with this responsibility. We have nothing to fear, for in the name of Jesus, there are no no no-go areas. It is a challenge for existing citizens. I think it was C.T. Studd, who abandoned sporting fame and a great fortune to give his life in missionary service, who coined the ditty, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. 
I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. In the NIV commentary on Mark, David Gollan writes about this man. People who live in such lonely despair need to meet Jesus Christ and allow that encounter to transform their lives. Churches, however, have fled the places where these troubled souls usually gather to settle in more comfortable locations. Who will bring Christ to them? Let's be honest, friends. Most of us prefer to stay on the other side of the lake, the safe side. That's the challenge. So let's move on to the second phase, crossing the lake. Secondly, liberating the prisoner. You'll find that in verses 6 through 13. Now this description of the encounter of Jesus with this man who emerges from the tombs raises all sorts of questions to the modern mind. At one time, it was confidently asserted that when the New Testament speaks of demon possession, it was simply a first century description of some serious mental psychosis or a multiple personality disorder and to blame the condition of the man like this on a chemical imbalance or inherited a genetic predisposition to violence or to blame it on a history of abuse when he was a child. Now, all of those things do happen. However, when you've screened them all out, there still remain cases that cannot be attributed to just mental or psychological causes. One writer writes, we have named the demons of the past, but we have not exercised them. Now, if we take this teaching of Jesus seriously, and the Bible, we must face the conclusion which even sceptics are now coming to, seeing the horrors that human beings inflict on themselves and others, that there are malevolent forces at work in our world today who on rare occasions literally take over people and devastate their lives. Now, listen, I've worked in India or Africa. I would hardly need to labor this point if I was working there because people know the reality of it, only too graphically. And it's becoming more of a reality in our society. Now, the Bible calls this evil mastermind behind the activity, this kind of activity by various names, Satan, the devil, Lucifer, and so on, and describes the evil powers who do his bidding as demons. So we see in this story that these demons inhabit and imbue this man with supernatural power and cause him to self-mutilate. And as you look at the conversation, you'll see this switch from the singular to the plural, which is very strange as though the man is speaking and the demons are speaking through him. So here we have, I would say, a demon-possessed man. Now, this does not mean that everyone who does evil is similarly possessed, or that we can blame the devil for every bad thing that we do or every bad thing that happens to us. No, this is extreme and extreme and thankfully pretty rare case. It is here an extreme example of the devil's worst, and it is included here, and Jesus plans this encounter to say, Even when the devil does his absolute worst in a person's life, I can do my absolute best because it demonstrates Christ's absolute authority, that he can liberate the person who is in the strongest grip of Satan. Now, by conclusion, if he can liberate someone in the worst, the strongest grip, he's surely able to liberate those who are in a lesser grip of Satan. Now, it is not an easy case to deal with for Jesus. Look at the story very briefly as we go through it. The text makes it clear that as soon as the man runs up and confronts Jesus, he falls on his knees. We don't know whether in worship or what he's doing. Jesus commands the spirit, come out of this man, you evil spirit. 
And instead of instant obedience, as happens on other occasions, the demon or the man responds by saying, what do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High, swear to God that you won't torture me. Unlike human beings, even religious experts and disciples, the demonic powers have no difficulty in recognizing who Jesus is. That he is the Son of the Most High, a term commonly used by non-Jews to describe God. It was also believed that if you know the name of a person their intimate personal name, you then acquire control over them. But in the case of Jesus, this has no effect whatsoever. For he is, as we often sing, the name high over all. And so Jesus turns the tables and says to the man, what is your name? And the demon replies, or the man, whichever, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now a legion was a group of 6,000 soldiers. It was a military unit. He doesn't give a name, he gives a number. You know, when you get arrested, if you're in military, you, 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 you give your number. You're caught in combat. This is my number. Uh, the, the use of this term reveals that the man was a battleground who had been occupied by an invading army. And recognizing that his number is up, the demons plead with Jesus not to send them out of the area. If you read Matthew's account of this story, the demons ask Jesus, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? And in Luke's gospel, they plead with Jesus, don't send us into the abyss, the final destination for Satan and all his hosts, which they know. And it appears that these powers need to inhabit some animate being. And if not a human being, then an animal will do. And so they plead to be allowed to leave the man and go into the pigs. Uh, Jesus gives permission and just what the demons had feared actually happens. The pigs are thrown into such a frenzy that they plunge lemming-like over the cliff and into the, sea, into the sea where they are drowned. The sea that threatened just previously to drown the disciples, that same sea now drowns the pigs and the demons with them. David Garland again notes, the demonic spirits ignited the rampage that led to their destruction, not Jesus. And the outcome is that the man is fully restored. Verse 15, we learn that when the town comes out to see him, there's this wild man sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. Now we need to stress again that there's a lot that we don't know about the details of this story in the background to it. They're unique even in the Gospels. However, let me state two extremes that we need to avoid as we read this story. The first is to regard this as some kind of manual for do-it-yourself exorcism. No one who encounters this kind of thing, even in much lesser measure, does so by choice. The person I know who probably has the most experience in Britain of dealing with this kind of thing over many years uh, told me that he was involved privately with people who, who the Lord brought into his path, he didn't seek them, for five years before he even told the elders of his church the ministry he was involved in. You can be sure that anyone who advertises their expertise in this area doesn't have any expertise in this at all. And I would say to you, don't look for this kind of thing. If it comes across your path and God has brought it across your path, then tread very carefully and prayerfully and seek help from others. However, there is an opposite extreme into which most of us are far more likely to fall. To regard this kind of thing as an interesting novelty. Hence the plethora of books and novels on this kind of thing. With the, with the effect that it has no real bearing on us personally. 
And this is a very dangerous mistake to make because I say to you, though few of us, I hope by God's grace, will ever be possessed or even oppressed in a significant way by Satan. That does not mean you are exempt from the devil's influence. We saw the other week when we looked at the parable of the sower that whenever the gospel is preached, whenever I stand to preach in this church, the devil is at work. What is he doing? He's snatching the seed of the word of God away from your mind before it can germinate. And some of you are already thinking about when is this going to stop and I can get home for my lunch. The devil is at work. The Apostle Peter warns all Christians to watch out for the enemy. He says he's like a roaring lion. Be self-controlled and alert, Christians. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. And sometimes his activity is far more subtle and difficult to detect. The Apostle Paul warns the Christians in Corinth that sometimes Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. In fact, I believe the reason why demonic possession is so rare is that it is far more easy to spot than Satan's subtle activity in our lives. He much prefers in my life and your life just to incapacitate you with that Achilles heel of that besetting sin which brings you down again and again and again rather than exposing himself publicly in this particular way. Watch out. He fires his fiery darts. He knows your Achilles heel. He looks out for it. And if he can wound you, damage you, destroy your witness and credibility in that one area, and yours will be different from mine, then he would far rather do that. C.S. Lewis, great erudite academic. If you've read his book, Surprised by Joy, if you've never read it, read it. It's an interesting story of how a brilliant man became a Christian. He described himself as being dragged, dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. And he describes his experience before he became a Christian in these terms. He said, my life was a zoo of lust, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. Interesting description, isn't it? You look at him and think, brilliant academic. The reality of his internal life was far different. And I ask you now, have you been set free from the power of Satan and sin? As Robert said to the children, have you been transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light, from the power of Satan to God? That's a radical transformation that takes place when you come to Christ. Now we turn to the third stage in the story. Our time is going. Disturbing the status quo, verses 14 to 17. Those responsible for tending the pigs see what has happened to their charges and rush off into the town to tell the owners what has happened. Can you imagine going back and saying, you know those pigs we're looking after you Yes, sir. Well, actually, they've all drowned. What, all 2,000? Yes. Can't believe it. Well, you better come and see what's happened. And so they come out to the town, and there they see this man sitting clothed in his right mind at the feet of Jesus, but no pigs. Now, you'd think they'd be absolutely delighted, wouldn't you? Wow, this man has been the scourge of their society. This man that no one could bind with, even iron bars, uh, iron chains, he's been set free, he's liberated, he's a new man. You'd say, tell me more, Jesus, about yourself. What a man you are, amazing. But instead of faith, their reaction is one of fear. As we've seen again and again in Mark's Gospel, the most amazing, astounding miracles do not necessarily produce faith. 
I know what you think. If I'd been there when Jesus was around and seeing raise people from the dead, restore demoniacs, heal the sick, I'd become a Christian immediately. No, you wouldn't. So our Lord told another rich man, they'll not believe even if one rise from the dead. And instead of welcoming Jesus, they asked him to leave. Just as the demons, same word, beg Jesus to send them into the pigs, so the people plead, they beg with Jesus to leave the region. Please, please, they say. They know that it is a man who can cast 2,000 pigs into the sea, so uh, what might he do to them? But they plead with him, please, please leave. Despite the consequences which follow, Jesus agrees to their request. Now, in the case of these people, it doesn't result in immediate destruction. They're not thrown over the cliff. But it does mean ultimate destruction for those who continue to reject the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. You see, people are invited to join His kingdom, but you're never coerced into accepting. And I want to say to those of you who are not Christians this morning, you may have heard all this before. The invitation that Jesus offers. Your life may be in a mess. And I simply say to you, he will not force you into his kingdom. He invites you. Come, follow me. And before we're too quick to condemn these people, we should look at a little more closely at the reason for their response to Jesus, as we may be tempted to do likewise. Clearly, their refusal was tied up with the loss of these pigs and their income. For them, people did didn't matter more than pigs. Pigs mattered more than people. Especially if you weigh up, what's the value of 2,000 pigs on the one hand and a demonic man who's been a menace to society on the other hand? How do you weigh the comparable value? They looked at it and said, we prefer the pigs. You see, the coming of Jesus disturbed the status quo of their lives and their economy. They're happy to sacrifice one man to sustain it. So rather than risk further upset, they ask Jesus to leave. Whenever Jesus comes into any situation, when his word is preached, it comforts the disturbed, but it disturbs the comfortable. I often pray that before preaching. Lord, comfort the disturbed this morning. Disturb the comfortable. Jesus disturbs the status quo of our societies. If you read the book of Acts and the record of how the gospel began to spread out as, they, as Christians carried the message, you see this again and again. Here, here's Paul and Silas in the city of Philippi. And there's another girl who's demon-possessed by a spirit that gives her the ability to tell fortunes. And she, persists, she goes after them saying the same thing. These men are servants of the Most High God. And eventually Paul turns around, he's had enough, and he says, come out of the spirit. And you think everyone would be delighted. No, her owners are absolutely furious because they've lost their source of income from this girl. And so they stir up a riot that eventually the apostles end up in prison at midnight. You remember the story, the earthquake, the conversion of the Philippian jailer, and the next day they have to leave town. Come with me a further down the road and they come to the city of Ephesus, great centre of occult power. And the gospel has such a powerful effect. These few men with no weapons begin to preach about Jesus and people begin to burn their spells and their books. And what happens? 
the economy begins to suffer because the people who make silver shrines of the goddess Artemis find out that people aren't buying them anymore. And so what do they do? They stir up a riot and they go to the authorities and say, these men are teaching us customs which are unlawful for us Romans. And there's a riot in the amphitheater and the apostles again have to leave town. Wherever the gospel goes, it disturbs the status quo. It provokes opposition from societies who are more interested in status and wealth than in the changed lives of individuals for whom people matter more than pigs. But the coming of Jesus also challenges the status quo in our lives. Becoming a Christian is a radical change. Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, everything becomes new. It produces produce a radical change in life. If you profess to be a Christian and there is no change in your life, then probably the Holy Spirit is not in your life either. Because it will produce change in your behavior. Habits, some of them are more overtly seen. Others are to do with our attitudes and our behavior. And the sad thing is, I find this so often in pastoral work, speaking to people who've got enormous problems. And yet they're unwilling to let go of their habits. They're unwilling to let go of these things which are destroying them. And it's such a tragedy. And they say, come to Christ. He will set you free from the power of sin. And they sort of dither and say, well, you know, I prefer... Well, they wouldn't say it that way, but the reality is they prefer to stay where they are. Now, you may be one of them. And I simply say to you, look where it will lead you. Jesus, when asked to leave, will not impose himself on us. We have to freely hand over our lives to him. So the question is, do we want Jesus to go or do we want to go with Jesus? Do we want Jesus to go? Or do we want to go with Jesus? Now, fourthly and finally, the man in the story wants to go with Jesus. And finally, look at refusing the request, verses 18 to 20. We're nearly there. We've seen in this story that Jesus grants two requests. The request of the demons to go and the pigs, the request of the people that he should leave. Now here's a third request. As he's getting into the boat, the man who has been demon-possessed begs to go with him. It's a wonderful touching scene, isn't it? You, You think of what this man was. And he comes and he falls down. He says, please, Jesus, let me get in the boat with you and follow you. I want to be your follower. What is surprising is not just that Jesus refuses to let him come, but also what he tells him to do. Look at the surprising response of Jesus. Negatively, Jesus did not let him. must have been a great disappointment to this man. I was reading Sinclair Ferguson's little book on Mark, again, a book that I'd recommend to you. This is what he says. We need to learn that Jesus' refusals to his followers are always because he has some better purpose for us than that which we request. Some of us would do well to write that down and remember it when we complain against God, when we ask him to do something and he says no. Why does he say no? Because he's got something better for you. When he says no to that career change, no to that relationship, no, whatever it might be. All of us, some of us may be in that situation this morning. And Jesus has something better for us. Now, what did he have better for this man? Positively, he says, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he's had mercy on you. Now, this is surprising because on previous occasions, we've seen when Jesus heals people, he strictly tells them not to tell anybody about it. Why does he say to this man, go home and tell all your pals about it? We can't be absolutely sure, but the probable reason is this. Jesus told the people in Israel 
who were healed and helped, not to tell anyone, because the Jews would get completely the wrong idea about the kind of Messiah he was and would frustrate his mission. But this man is in Gentile territory. And the gospel is for these Gentiles. So the man goes home and spreads the news we learn in the Decapolis. He goes around the ten ten towns telling his testimony about how much Jesus had done for him. He's been rightly described as the first apostle to the Gentiles. And those who experience the power of Christ to the greatest extent are the greatest and most potent ambassadors for Christ. If God has come into your life, then you need to go home and tell your family, your friends, your colleagues, your fellow students, what Jesus has done for you. you. You may not know a lot of theology. Think of that blind man who was healed by Jesus and everybody tested him for a theological analysis. He said, I can't tell you. He said, one thing I know, once I was blind, now I can see. Now you don't need a sophisticated testimony. You just need to say, look, my life was in a mess. I invited Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior and my life has been changed and transformed. David Garland again says, the splash created by the testimony of the man is more effective in divulging who Jesus is than the splash created by the demons and the pigs. So, what about the pigs? Sally Woodward, the producer of the proposed film on the Tamworth 2, comments, interestingly, this film shows how contrary human beings are in their relationship with animals. We are only too happy to tuck into a pork chop, but are outraged when we want to capture a pig that has stolen our hearts. William Barclay comments, There is a cheap sentimentalism which will languish in grief over the pain of an animal, but never turn a hair at the wretched state of millions of God's men and women. And he says quite rightly, This is not to say that we need not care what happens to God's animal creation. We're stewards of that. God loves every creature whom his hands have made. But it is to say we must preserve a sense of proportion. And in God's scale of proportions, in Jesus' analysis, there is nothing so important as a human soul. Here's the final thing to think about. Society treated this man like an animal and he behaved like one. But Jesus restored him to what God had intended. All of us human beings are made in the image of God And however devastating and obvious it is, the truth is this, our lives are ruined by sin. As you walk down the street, you will see people whose lives are ruined by sin. They may look like C.S. Lewis, Lewis, erudite academic. They may look like wealthy, rich people have got it all together. But our lives are ruined by the malaise, by the disease, the sickness of sin, which will wreck our lives. And Jesus Christ came into the world to restore us. Why? Because people matter more than pigs. And that's good news for all of us. Let's pray together.